welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 165. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, Doubleheader Special. Doubleheaders are occasional episodes we run that feature two contrasting stories by the same kick-ass author. This is our sixth Doubleheader special, and we're featuring writer Ellen Clagis with two great flash stories, Ringing Up Baby and Mobius, Stripped of a Muse. Miss Clagis is the author of two acclaimed young adult novels, The Green Glass Sea and White Sands Red Menace. Her short fictions appeared in numerous science fiction and fantasy anthologies and magazines, including the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Black Gate, and Firebirds Rising. She won a Nebula Award in 2005 and has had several of her other stories on the final ballot for the Nebula and Hugo Award since. She recently appeared on the Drabblecast a few weeks ago with a story called Intelligent Design. Keep up with Ellen and her awesome fiction at ellenclagis.com. Reading the first story and helping out with the second, the voice of Kimmy Alexander. Kimmy's a writer, voice actress, and podcaster who's been on the web since the mid-90s. Her award-nominated podcast, Tale Chasing, a show for urban fantasy readers and writers, is now in its third year. And Guardians, her novel about a bodyguard drawn into a murder mystery with supernatural elements, launched as a serialized podcast in 2009. You'll find links to those in our show notes. Check her out at gifted-reader.com. So, without further ado, Ringing Up Baby by Ellen Clagis. Nanny says that I am spoiled. It comes from being an only child and not having to share holidays or cakes and always getting to sit by the window. If I had a little brother or sister, I would learn responsibility. More work for her, she sighs, but she is only thinking of my character. Thinking about me is Nanny's job. Of course, Mother is far too busy to have a baby right now, what with the Henderson case and all. When I have supper with her on Wednesdays, she talks about nothing but the Henderson case. So Nanny has arranged for a nice lady to plant Mother's egg and do all the messy parts, then give the baby to us when it's done. What would you like, Nanny asks me over Coco, a brother or a sister? I have to think for a moment, but only a little, because a brother would be a pest and get into my best things, like Courtney Taylor's brother Robbie, who programmed her mobile phone to ring with a nasty farting sound. A sister is someone I can be the boss of. A sister, please, I say in my sweet voice. Nanny loves my sweet voice. Nanny touches a box on the wall screen, and it glows bright pink. Birthday? she asks, her finger not quite touching the screen, but ready. My birthday is in June. October, I say after a minute, because I've had to count in my head, so her party won't get in the way of Christmas either. Excellent, says Nanny. We can place our order now. She taps her finger on the screen. That box glows red. What else can we pick? There are a lot of boxes. I finish my cocoa and stand right next to Nanny, who smells like Vermont today. A nice, cool, green smell. She begins to read to me, scrolling slowly down. Hair color? Brown. Mine is honey blonde. Eyes? Mine are blue, so brown again. Intelligence? I have to think about that. 
I don't want a sister who's stupid, but if she's smarter than me, she will be difficult to boss. Above average, Nanny decides. Good at math? Hmm. I'm in second grade, and we're doing the times tables. That could be useful, but it probably isn't something she'll be able to do right away. So I shrug, which is a mistake, because Nanny is very strict about manners and posture, and I have to listen to a lecture before she will tap the bottom of the screen and scroll to the next page of baby parts. This page is less interesting because the words are very long, and I don't know what they mean. Bioimmunity. Cholesterol. Neuromuscular? I stare at the screen with my eyes very wide so that I don't yawn out loud. On the side of the screen is a list, like the menu on the M-Rite of Toysite, which I used by myself last year for my Christmas once. The baby's list is not very long. Babies only come in about six colors. We're getting one that matches mother and me. Humans are a lot less interesting than Legos or iBots. Nanny reads me all the diseases you can ask your baby not to have. Most of them are options, she says, which means we have to pay more. But I think we should pick them all because a sick sister is not a good thing. Angela Zobie's sister has asthma because she was made the old-fashioned way, without a menu. And she gets all the attention. I wouldn't like that. Nanny takes a breath for another lecture, but I am saved when the iVid sings the phone call song. Nanny sighs again, and when she says, connect, I see that it's her mother, who calls every afternoon. Mrs. Nanny is quite deaf, even with her implants, so Nanny taps save on the baby screen and goes downstairs where she can shout without me hearing all the words. I slump back into my chair because Nanny isn't here to tell me not to, and because she will be gone a long time. Her mother always has a lot to say. I stare at all the diseases, and then I see a better word at the bottom of the screen. Pets. We don't harbor animals because Nanny is allergic. She was made the old-fashioned way, too. But I'd like to see what we could have. I touch the screen to scroll down for more pets, and a bubble man appears to tell me about a special offer. His picture seems to come out of the wall and stand right in front of me. Jellyfish DNA on sale, the bubble man says. He takes off his top hat, pulls a rabbit out of it, and holds it out towards me. The rabbit's fur glows a soft, bright green. Wow, I say. Bioluminescence, 50% off. Today only. Touch box 306A to order. He steps back into the screen and disappears with a little picture of smoke. It only takes me a minute to find box 306A, and I tap it to red. Then I save and scroll back up to the diseases box. It is good to leave things just the way you found them. I sit very straight in my chair, humming, because I know a secret. Once I have my baby sister, I will never need my nightlight again. Nanny will be so proud. Mobius, Stripped of a Muse by Ellen Clagis. Tom O'Hara watched the light wink out in the window of the tenement apartment, then mopped his chiseled brow and walked cautiously up to the old brownstone stoop. He lit a match in front of the row of tarnished brass mailboxes. Janet Abramowitz, Apartment 4D. He swore softly. 
Twelve years of searching for the double-crossing redhead who'd sent his best friend to the chair, and she'd been here all along, just a few blocks away from where it had all gone so tragically wrong. He unholstered his forty-five automatic and stepped into the dank hallway. He heard the click a fraction of a second before he dove for the floor. The slug tore into the plaster an inch from where his head had been. Drop the gun, Tom, said a sultry voice from the darkness above. Drop it now and come up nice and slow. I've been waiting for this for a long time. He dropped the forty-five, heard it clatter on the stairs. The noise masked the rustle of fabric as he eased the thirty-eight special out of his waistband. Why'd you do it, Janet? He asked as he thumbed the safety off. That night, you and Lucky... Be a good boy and I'll tell you, she said, right before you die. But first, you've got to... Got to what? Damn it, John Cameron thought. He stared at the blinking lights of his right omatic 3000. How the hell was he going to get O'Hara out of this one? Can't kill him off, the bastard. Or Janet, either. Two more books in the series. He'd backed himself into a corner on this one. Frowning, he pulled the lever marked Type Pages and walked into the galley as the keys began to clatter. Beer, he said to the vid screen. Space City Amber. The ship's sensor blinked once, and a cold bottle of beer appeared in the steel receptacle, beads of condensation forming on its brown plexi surface. Peanuts? Asked the ship. Not today, thanks. Cameron snapped his fingers at the sensor panel, and the screen went blank. John Cameron took a long swig of his beer as he walked over to the perspex slit in the curved metal wall of his module. He looked out at the black, star-studded sky. Two days until the ship was in range of his transmission to Earth, and he still didn't have an ending. The trip had seemed like such an opportunity in the beginning. The first novelist in space. What publicity there had been. The books had sold millions. He had enough credits to live like a king when he got back to Earth. If he got back to Earth. Two more years. He never should have agreed to a four-book contract. Ugh, would he last another 730 more days in this glorified tin can? He wasn't sure. Okay, he had everything he'd ever desired. Any meal, any drink, any movie, all at the flick of a switch. But he couldn't think of anything he really wanted anymore. Not a thing. Zero. Zilch. Zipola. Nothing much, really. Ugh, nothing said Norman Hayes out loud. Great, I've created a future full of nothing. He sighed, ripped the page out of the typewriter, crumpled it, and tossed it in the vicinity of his wastebasket. The ink from the carbon paper stained his fingers like the dark shadow he felt hanging over him. John Cameron, galactic scribe, was just not working out. It was original, a new idea. None of the hacks at ripping yarns of science or cosmic thrills had done a heroic space writer yet. They were still churning out potboilers about Captain Prime and Dr. Logic and the Tenderizer. Sure, they were selling, but John Cameron was his ticket out of the pulps and into the big time. Two cents a word. Maybe even three. Three cents? <laughs> three cents in 1938. That'd be a great year. 
Norman climbed out onto his fire escape and leaned against the brick wall. He lit a lucky strike, exhaling the blue smoke into the warm night air. Across the river, the lights of New York twinkled like jewels, and high overhead he could hear the faint drone of motors as a zeppelin moved slowly through the sky on its way to Lakehurst. Lakehurst? Really? Oh, God, that simply screams cliché, said Professor Atwood, looking up from the thin sheaf of manuscript pages. Ooh, wait, don't tell me. (laughs) It's the Hindenburg, right? Elizabeth Norris bit her lip, then nodded. Trite, entirely predictable. He dismissed the pages with a wave of his manicured hand. (laughs) Not your best work, Elizabeth. You haven't given it a chance. Just read a little farther. See, in this universe, it's not really the Hindenburg. It's an alien spaceship, and it's drawn to Earth when it intercepts Orson Welles' War of the World broadcast, which it interprets as an SOS from another ship in its fleet. So instead of exploding, when it docks in New Jersey, battle robots come pouring out. They look like cats, except with tentacles, and they kind of have ray gun eyes that hypnotize Earth people into becoming their slaves, so that they can- Oh, stop, Atwood said. Just stop. This is supposed to be a creative literature class. There are no rocket ships in literature, Elizabeth. If you want a passing grade, you're going to have to try and salvage something readable out of this. He licked his thumb and leafed quickly through the pages. Now, here's a promising bit, where your protagonist is trying to decide whether to pawn his typewriter to buy his aged mother some cheese. It's not much, but it has the potential for a poignant little character sketch, I think. Have you read the sketch chapter in my book, Prose for the Heartstrings? Elizabeth shook her head. Ah, well, you must. It's out of print, sadly, but I can lend you one of my copies. I only live a few blocks away. You could come over this evening? Say, around seven? He smiled at her suggestively. Oh, please. Not the smile. Marsha Brown made a face and threw the manuscript of Writers Writing Always back onto the slush pile. Why would anyone in their right mind think there was a market for stories like that? She hadn't read anything original all week, and Dan McDaring, her boss and the editor of Romantic Quarks, was expecting her in his office at Four Sharp. She had to find something to impress him. Marsha had ambitions. She was going to be an editor herself someday, someday soon really soon. Janet Abramowitz typed the word soon again, then hit delete and turned out her light. She stared out the tenement window. In the darkness, four stories below, she saw the brief, bright flare of someone lighting a match. She watched the afterimage for a moment, then smiled and picked the revolver up off of her bookshelf. She walked to the doorway of apartment 4D and waited, plotting a better future. Well, that was our double header. Hope you enjoyed it. Apartment 4D. You caught that right. Right, Mr. Smarty Pants. X, Y, and Z are for chumps. The finite is for pansies. It's all about the tetraspace, man. 
M.C. Escher is one of my top three idols of all time. It's an unhealthy man crush that I'm not ashamed of at all. Some of his prints, like Day and Night, Reptiles, and Mobius II, give me whirling dervish fits when I stare at them too long, with their superposition of two- and three-dimensional images. Escher described himself as irritated by flat shapes. And so what did he do? I make them come out of the plane, he said. I love that quote. Some of my other favorite Escher quotes. My work is a game. A very serious game. Are you really sure that a floor can't also be a ceiling? He who wonders discovers that this in itself is wonder. Only those who attempt the absurd will achieve the impossible. I think it's in my basement. Let me go upstairs and check. We've got a link to Escher work in our show notes this week. Why not take a minute to go look and to go think? You can never revisit this guy's work enough. Listener story feedback for episode 161, Higher Than Usual, by Derek Patterson, read by Dan Chambers, a story we ran a few weeks ago about everyone going crazy for some reason and forming office militias. Folks mostly liked it, and everyone had good things to say about Dan Chambers' reading. Talia said, Great story, excellent reading. The rage virus made me think of 28 Days Later, but if it were written by, say, Monty Python. Mike Deschain said, Love this one. The ability of Brits to not only keep their cool, but to be cheerful during chaotic situations always makes me smile. The narration by Chambers was simply amazing. And Dougal Strange said, This story was awesome. I love the fact that the narrator seemed lucid and sympathetic throughout. It was a slow burn as he moved away from his calm, pathetic stance in regards to the accountants, to his more leveled treatment of that suffocating woman, and finally the enlightenment of combat. I was rooting against those damned sysops from the very beginning. Death to the north side. Death to the north side indeed. Unless it's the north side of Illinois, where this week's kick-ass donor of the week is from. Mike Collins Dowden. Mike's a music teacher living in Chicago with his wife and two cats. He says he first decided to check out the Drabblecast after hearing some of Escape Pod episodes that I hosted. He says, After listening to that story about the girl fighting off mutants to bring home some Captain Crunch, I was hooked. While Mike claims to generally be a cat person, he says he was disappointed that Hellcat beat Penguin in the Mega Beast Deathmatch finals this year. Sorry about that, Mike. You're not the only one, buddy. If only penguins weren't totally feeble and defenseless. But hey, thanks for supporting us, man. We really appreciate it. If you folks at home enjoyed the stories this week, consider chucking us a donation via the PayPal credit card options off of our site, www.drabblecast.org. Every penny is cherished. So, hey, Balticon is this weekend, and I'm going to go try and remember the lyrics to my songs now. The only thing more embarrassing than singing a song about finding a fetus in your glove compartment is forgetting the words to it. But before we go, this week's 100-character TwitFix story winner, powerhouse newcomer to the forums, Tobias, with this piece of 100-character prose. My wife smiles down at me. Eyes agleam. She leans down, runs her hands through my hair, and hoists my severed head from a basket. How romantic. 
So that's our show, folks. Remember that the Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it or sell it, but share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you get the show if it crosses your mind. Spread the word. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to make them come out of the plane. Closing, the waitress turns chairs upside down.